0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry podcast. Right, Rhys Edwards, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. You are the director of the upcoming true crime documentary called The Rev, which comes out today, October 9th. How did you get into this? This is a bizarre story. I'm going to read a little synopsis of this in just a moment, but before we do, what is your thought process now that you've completed the film? (laughs) well, yeah, it's it's
1: unbelievable in two ways. The, the story is unbelievable, but I think as well, it's unbelievable that not many people have heard of it. Being Welsh, especially from North Wales and Welsh-speaking, I'd heard of the story as a giggling schoolboy, but wasn't quite sure what was true, what wasn't true. Was it an urban myth? Um, so, yeah, during lockdown, I, I make documentaries anyway, and I'm quite interested in true crime. So this was the most bizarre, true, true, true crime story of all. And it happened to happen on my home patch and it was uh, involving Welsh speakers. So, yeah, we looked into it and, yeah, I was surprised to
0: realise that it was all true. So are you a native Welsh speaker then? Is that your mother tongue, as it were? Yeah, that's my first language, yeah. Is that more common in North Wales than say South Wales then? Cuz it seems like all the regions in this film were based up north.
1: I think it is numbers I think numbers wise there are more in South Wales but it's denser hmm. in North Wales because there's less of us. But if you go to North West Wales where I am now um yeah it's quite common.
0: Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this synopsis from the press release, right? Just so people that are listening know what the hell we're talking about. And then we'll get into it a little bit more. So here we go. In 1985, Detective Inspector Gwyn Roberts was sent to a quiet Welsh seaside town to investigate an unusually threatening and vile anonymous letter leading him to the home of mild-mannered clergyman, the Reverend Emir Owen. What the police found in the unassuming house was shocking. Dozens of pornographic magazines and books on black magic, cannibalism and surgery. But the most vital discovery of all were a series of photographs from which one thing became clear. The Reverend was guilty of abusing and mutilating human bodies awaiting burial. To this day, with no similar offence ever recorded in legal history, it remains one of Britain's most infamous criminal sprees so that's a bit of context for the the overview of this story the interesting thing we touched upon just off air there before we went to record was it mentions criminal sprees at the end there and we're sort of jumping ahead here in the story but they were actually struggling to pin a crime against the Reverend right so how did it actually end up going to be a legal charge in that situation
1: well this is a slightly gray area because they they didn't know what to charge him with, as you said they they started off with criminal damage, but they realized there's no um no one owns a body. So in order for it to be criminal damage, you have to damage someone's property and there's no property in a body. So then they tried to outraging public decency. but then that didn't work either because it wasn't public. He did it in secret. he did it in chapels in the dead of night the the night before these bodies were meant to be buried so that didn't work either so in the end they they used uh mutilating a corpse which technically isn't a chargeable offense but because emir pleaded guilty it means it didn't go to trial and then um yeah they they just kind of put him in jail he only got a year and a half which is surprising um but I think he he was also found guilty of writing threatening letters and threatening to kill a four-year-old girl so um yeah I think most of that time was for that offense rather than the you know what they were trying to make up if he would have pleaded not guilty, we we don't know what would have happened.
0: It would have been an interesting outcome. To provide a bit more context, the the it that we're referring to here is the Reverend Emmett Owen. He mutilated three bodies. It was three, wasn't it? Yeah. Three male bodies prior to them being buried. And what he did was essentially remove their genitals, took them home, took photographs of them, sort of messed around with them really, didn't he? It's not like he kept them to display them. He kept them to... What's the word I'm trying to think of? Abuse them, I guess. There's a better word for it. I just can't think of it. And then he discarded them like they were nothing. I think he threw one in the sea, fed one to the seagulls, and then I think he maybe buried the third one. So that's the act that we're referring to here. But as you mentioned, it all started with these letters that he was sending anonymously. You just want to talk to me a little bit about how the, the detective, uh, Gwyn Roberts, actually clocked onto the discovery of those letters being written by Emir.
1: Yeah, so these letters were weird, really weird. He was, you know, some of them were funny. He was having a go at the local organist um, saying she couldn't play the organ very well and that kind of thing. But some of them were horrible as well. So he was—he threatened to kill a four-year-old girl. So, yeah, they were, they, they were deemed quite vile and serious enough to warrant an investigation. At the at the time um towyn was kind of a seaside town in winter there was much less crime so Gwyn Roberts had more time on his hands to investigate these so what he did he he found, in one of the local they knew that the letter writer was from towin because of the postmarks and that kind of thing so he found a um You know, the stub of a a raffle ticket, Hmm. um, which had loads and loads of signatures and addresses and phone numbers on them. And he compared some to to these. And he thought that he compared, I think, 4,000 different samples of handwriting. And in the end, a farmer phoned him and asked him to come over and have a look at the New Testament that he had. And when he opened the New Testament um he was he was looking for a particular letter that the letter T was written in a in a particular way um so he was looking for this particular letter T and when he opened the New Testament that the farmer gave him, he immediately recognized the the letter T that was written like this and then he knew that the Reverend Emmy Owen that had written inside the cover.
0: Um, he knew that it was him. It's interesting, isn't it? Because this letter T it almost looked like a, an R, so it sort of goes up and then then across to the right.
1: Yeah, apparently it's it's the way Gwen was saying it's the way that his grandparents used to write the letter T. So he thought that he was looking for a for an older gentleman. He was writing, well, I think he was 64 when he was caught.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned someone who grew up in like the 20s or the 30s or something or learned how to write in that era would have the similar T to to Gwyn's grandparents. That's right. And it was turning up at the property to confront Amir about this. And he he rocks up Gwyn with an English-speaking officer as well. And there was a, I don't know if it was a journalist or a broadcaster in the documentary who mentioned that there's a, an entire sort of script, like a movie script, it seems like, of this interaction, because it had to say it in English for the benefit of the English-speaking officer, but also for legal reasons. Is that right? It had to say it in English?
1: Well, I don't think that it was compulsory, but it, it does happen, um, especially, I think, back in the 80s. If they were doing official police business, although Emir and Gwen were first language Welsh speakers, they would turn to English to be more official. Um, but it's really weird when two Welsh speakers who know that you know the other one is a first language Welsh speaker as well. Um, it's weird when they're forced to speak English together because of, of a third person. But yeah, so every word that was uh, said that night was written down in the police reports so in the documentary we do um we do reconstructions but you know usually you would have to you would have to guess you would have a script writer you would have someone come up with you know put words in their mouths but we were really lucky because we didn't have to do that we knew 100% that these that were the words that were said and yeah it's You know, it's a sad story uh, all in all, but there are some comic moments
0: um, in what was said that night. What was the casting process like? Because the the actor who plays Emhyr was pretty spot on based on the images that you've shown of him in real life.
1: Yeah, so Aelid Jones is a wonderful actor. He's quite well known on the Welsh comedy circuit. He'd never actually played the straight role before, which That's is interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but I knew he, w- he would do a good job. And coincidentally, well, or maybe not because Wales is such a small place, but um, Aylir, the actor, remembered Emir Owen from when he was a child because Aylir's father was also in the ministry in, in the same area. So Aylir actually remembered um, Emir going around in his Cuban heels. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure if he was he was uh, basing his character on the real person,
0: yeah, because the Cuban heels reference there is because Emir was quite small, wasn't he? Was he? Short, yeah, small yeah. and short, is, so he right? always used to wear Cuban heels, yeah. The other part of it as well, which we'll come on to, um, is his insecurities with regards to his stature, his size, because he was rejected. On application to the army, right? Because they said, and, and this is apparently a quote that he, he didn't have the body of a man.
1: Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? Um, and he would have seen that as well. And one of the first things we did after finding out what he did, you know, he went to prison and he had a lot of um psychiatric evaluations. So one of the first things we did when we were researching it was we found these. And we went through them, and the first thing we we realized it was it's such a sad story that all these things that went back to his childhood it was kind of like a perfect storm of things that must have affected him psychologically you know we we he took he spoke about he he went to work in the Oakley quarry in blaina faststignaog and when he started work there there was like an initiation ceremony and where the the older quarry workers pulled down the trousers and apparently everyone was laughing because he wasn't very well endowed um and also this when when he got to army age he was refused because not having the body of a man so you know we we're just guessing that he was very, or not even guessing, we know that he was very, very insecure about his body. And he was quite, uh, you know, he he was was gay. He was very, very religious. He believed he was from a Calvinist background. Um, Now, I don't know much about that, but I think they have a big emphasis on heaven and hell. You're either good or you're bad and he knew that he was bad because of his sexuality he was gay he he kind of came to realize at that time as well in in blena Fistignog, he wouldn't have had a name for it john sam jones that talks in the documentary he says that once once you realize that you know that you're gay if you if you have a name for it you can you can have a handle on it you can you can explain yourself but can you imagine if he'd never met anyone else that was like him and all these you know the the religious act aspect the whole guilt you know it just must have been a terrible storm in his mind and yeah made him commit these dreadful offenses
0: The story will continue after these quick messages and now back to the story one thing I took away from the documentary and that I I really enjoyed actually was it's for me it's an unbiased approach to this story it doesn't go in saying he's done these things they're atrocious what a terrible person but it also doesn't say he it doesn't come at it from a sympathy point of view as well I think it's kind of balanced and the way that you leave it to the people who appear in the documentary to give their own opinion rather than you driving that with a narrative because it's helpful. Like you say, when you've got a script of that interaction, when he gets taken in to the station, you're not having to come up with creative writing to put this story across. It's all factual and you're leaving it to the, the people who appear in it to give their opinion. There's one lady there who feels quite sorry for him, who thinks that he never should have been sent to jail. There's Gwynn who arrested him, who essentially thinks that he, you know, is a disgusting person who, was rightly locked up, perhaps should have been for longer. Was that something that you planned going in to give it this unbiased approach, or is that something that came organically after speaking to the guests?
1: I think so. When we started researching it, you know it was it was nearly meant to be a shock doc, like you know channel five e type type thing. But the more we researched into it, the more sympathetic we were. but At the same time, I didn't want to let him off the hook completely because what he did was terrible and it it upset a lot of families and it was a terrible thing that he did. But after looking at the psychiatrist's evaluations, there's some kind of clue there as to why he did those things. But, you know, he he's not alive. We can't talk to him now. So, yeah, I think we decided we'll give the facts, and they are facts, the police reports, the psychiatric evaluations, and then let people make up their own minds. As someone in the documentary says, I do have sympathy for him because it must have been a terrible place and time to grow up gay. But at the same time, that you know, there was... There were lots of gay people born up brought up at that time in North Wales, and not all of them ended up doing what Emir did. Mm. So yeah, we we were careful not to let them let him off the hook too much.
0: It was interesting to hear his reasoning for doing what he did. Because after speaking to the psychiatrist, there didn't appear to be any form of mental illness. He wasn't necessarily suffering from anything that could have impacted this. It was mainly a result of his upbringing. And like you said, this, this Calvinism aspect of the Presbyterian church, you've got good and bad. So he characterized it as good emir and bad emir. So he had these two sides to his personality. But the reasoning was to do with, and there's the original sin argument as well, to do with it was the it's the genitals that are responsible for all the the sin and the darkness of the world, hence removing it, kind of justified it in his head. I'm just curious to think, when you grew up and you heard stories of this mythological guy that you thought, is it real? Is it not real? What sort of things were being told? Because there's a point in there that mentions his character was being so negatively perceived by stuff that wasn't actually true. Can you remember what sort of stuff you would hear about him growing up? Well, the, the
1: biggest myth is that he would cut off the genitals and he would pickle them and put them in jars on his on his mantelpiece. That was a really strong um, narrative. Uh, lots of people thought that's what he did. In fact, when we we even interviewed one journalist that was around at the time of the story and he, he told us that and he said that's what he did. That's not true at all. Um, As Gwyn said in the documentary, um, he didn't do that. So, yeah, the, there's lots of myths surrounding the whole thing because it was kind of swept under the carpet slightly, I think. Although at the time it did make the front page of the sun, I think, and the mirror, it was pre-internet. So, yeah, it kind of... They brushed it under the carpet, and I think when things are brushed under the under the carpet, then you get these myths sort of growing around them. But yeah, that was the biggest one, really.
0: Do you think the sort of sweeping under the carpet has anything to do with the community or the the area of North Wales wanting to kind of forget that that ever happened? Is there any stain on the association with that story?
1: I think so. It, it was a terrible thing, you know. Um, I thought very carefully before making the documentary because we knew that we were going to be upsetting a lot of people by reminding them of this time. Um, you know, towen is such a small place and Emma is so well known. Yeah, it, it, it was terrible. It ruined, he was caught just before Christmas. I think it was the 23rd. And um yeah, the clerk told a lot of the journalists, please, please be sensitive when you when you report this story because it's going to ruin Christmas in towing. Um, and it did. So, yeah, I was very careful because um, I knew a lot of people would be upset. But because we found out these things that never been discussed before and we, we maybe thought we had it, we had worked out some kind of reason why he did it then I think we could justify making the documentary.
0: There was one journalist that mentioned not releasing information regarding the individuals who were dismembered by uh, by Emir. And there was another guy who said that his dad died round about that time and he conducted the funeral. So it, it kind of gave an indication as to people weren't ever given confirmation as to whether it was their relative is that the case because it must have been known who these victims were were their families ever informed
1: um no um officially the police line is they they didn't inform the families at all of who the victims were so yeah whether that's good or bad i think one argument is that instead of three families knowing for sure that their loved ones were involved, then you have a whole community that were not sure. But yeah, I'm sure the police had their reasons for
0: doing that. What challenges did you face when researching this? Because it seems like the kind of topic that people perhaps don't want to talk about. People don't
1: want to talk about it. And we did feel not bad, but we 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 thought carefully and I think I hope the Documentary is sensitive and even-handed, and I think it's important that we look at things like this. And yeah, someone in the documentary says that this couldn't happen again because the the society in which Emid was brought up and made doesn't exist anymore. So this thing couldn't happen again, but it did happen. And yeah, as I said, I hope we we're, were even handed in making
0: it. It comes across that way. When I watched it, it, it felt even, it felt unbiased. And the last thing I felt coming away from watching it was that there was some kind of dark cloud over the community. I think there still
1: is. Yeah. I think you know this this is the last generation now that we're affected by it. But yeah, I think it, it's still there. You know, we, we had a few People put the phones down on us when we were trying to contact them. And, um, yeah, people don't want to be reminded of that time.
0: It's understandable, I think, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. I I think so. Talk to me about the documentary-making process, because me and I, I imagine lots of people listening, the majority have never made a documentary before. What is the process you go through i assume you do the research first and the last thing you do is the filming but what's kind of the general step-by-step process without getting into too much detail
1: well yeah usually you you would start off researching something um what's interesting i make documentaries for a living and um usually there's always a deadline there's always you know it's going out in six months so it needs to be done you've got you know, a month to do your research and then you've got two months to film, you've got three months in the edit suite. But this happened, we started it just before COVID. So obviously COVID put a stop to everything, but I think that helped because we had a lot, lot more time to research it properly. And we had researchers working on it as well as ourselves. And yeah, I think that COVID helped because it just slowed the whole process down. Um, so we had a good, you know, we, we've got files this thick on the story. So we knew the story inside out, and the psychiatric evaluations is what really changed it because once we had them, it, was, it changed the whole thing. We, we were just a lot more sympathetic. I mean, if we would have started filming before we got them, then I think it would have been a very different film. But, yeah, so it took two two, three years over covid to to research the whole lot. And then, as soon as we could, we filmed it. So we filmed the Welsh language version first. Um, yeah. and then uh, we filmed the so we've used the same recreations, but we filmed um the English language interviews afterwards because everyone that well everyone that speaks Welsh can also speak English. So, right. it's handy if you're making a Welsh story that you know it's quite easy to, to make an English one back to back.
0: How does that work? Just out of curiosity, because if Welsh is the first language, but everyone that speaks Welsh speaks English, they must just be taught simultaneously. So, isn't technically, don't you have a dual common tongue?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, it's weird because. I'm bilingual. I speak Welsh and English, but I don't remember learning English. So you okay. just boxed up with him. I mean, it's much more difficult to learn you know, another language as an adult, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it kind of every Welsh speaker speaks English as well. So it doesn't, kind of, you know, we are bilingual, but sometimes I think it doesn't count the same as having learned a language as an adult.
0: What do you think sets this documentary apart from... Other similar similar sort of true crime documentaries. The key thing is this is a crime that hasn't taken place before and after, so you've got a bit of a leg up there. But what maybe with the style or with the the flow of it, what do you think helps this stand out from others in the genre?
1: Well, I think the the um, distributors got it right. They called it true crime with a heart, so I quite like that. Mm. Um, we're not trying to shock; we're trying to understand and although the crime itself is as shocking as it gets really no one no one died kind of they were already dead mm. um also there were no children involved i mean there was a letter that threatened to kill a child but that was a letter and you know it never would have happened and there are sort of comic elements of the whole so we 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 could be a bit more cheeky than the usual um, true crime documentaries. I mean, you know, with a murder or anything like that, you, you can't include any funny aspects, but I think we could here. Um, and, yeah, because being Welsh, I'm allowed to take the piss out of my own. Um, but, yeah, I think true crime with a heart, um, we made the film to try and understand why emir did what we, he did
0: it does come across because i didn't feel like it was sensationalized talking about the actual act of what he did it was more about the why how did he get there how has this been allowed to happen also the touching on the you know the homophobia that was rife at the time and how he was treated in a discriminatory way because of his sexuality and he was in the church. So you've got that juxtaposition there. So yeah, I think the way you've intended it to come across is how it's come across, which is obviously a good thing. Good thing hearing, (laughs) hearing that from a viewer. What are you hoping people take away from this as a viewer?
1: Well, you know more about this yourself, I'm sure, but behind most terrible crimes, there is, there's a kind of reasoning. I mean, if you're brought up and you suffer a lot of trauma in your childhood and, you know, in your adolescence, when we look back at Emir's life, you can see the whole, you know, the jigsaw. And so the reasoning he gave, so he went on television after he came out of prison in 1992. He, he went on television to try and justify what he did. And his justification was that he thought that men had a better chance of going to heaven without their sexual organs. So that was his reasoning. But also, I didn't want to let him off the hook because he was really interested in in the darker side of that kind of thing. So I don't think it was entirely as innocent as that. To come away with it, I'm not sure. I just want people to know about this story and how tragic it was and yeah hopefully we never see anything like this again
0: what's the initial feedback reaction you've got from people who have previewed it
1: well i think most people can't believe that they've never heard of this story before because it's probably one of the most shocking true crime stories you know in the uk if not the world um the true crime genre has grown so big now that you know all of the big cases you know there's a not netflix documentary about it and here we are in north wales with this incredible story and and until we made ours there, you know no one had heard about it so um yeah hopefully it, it'll get seen now that it's been made
0: you got any advice for any aspiring documentary filmmakers specifically with true crime um
1: yeah um do your research because um yeah we we were lucky that you know that there was a very thick file you feel like you get to know emir um yeah but certainly do your research and we're lucky because that's what i do for a living i mean i'm about to start another true crime story so um, it's it's helped. We're, we're a small company. There's only two of us. Um, so we're able to do things relatively cheaply. I film everything myself. Um, I edit it myself. So, yeah, we're lucky like that.
0: Cool. Well, we can watch The Rev. The Rev. The Rev, the Rev, yeah. The Rev, directed by Reese Edwards. It's premiering exclusively on Icon Film Channel from today, October 9th. If you go to iconfilmchannel.uk, you can get a seven-day trial. You can watch the documentary on there. Or I believe if you're on Amazon Prime, you can go on Icon Film on there. You should be able to search for the film and, and find it on there and get a free trial. 92 minutes long. It's really good, really worth the watch. Reese, thank you for coming on. And those listening or watching, if you're watching on YouTube, please go check out Rev. It's about the curious story of Reverend Emir Owen. Cowan was a close-knit rural Welsh community. It was the
1: ugliest of crimes in the most beautiful country. The Reverend Emmy Rowan, the servant of God, had become the servant of Satan. Officer Gwyn Roberts, why did he search the house? To my horror, I saw human severed body parts. Emmy Rowan had abused the trust of the living and dishonoured the dead. Families from Tobey were left in limbo. Corpses, mutilation, body parts. Nobody knew exactly what was true until now.
0: Why do what he did? Is he seeking revenge? Did this really happen? It did happen.